Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. This is a really special episode. It's our 200th episode and coming up, mountain stories and the best ways to say hello. My entry point to high altitude mountaineering and being a filmmaker really started out with a chance phone call. And I get this question, which was, do you want to go to Everest? I need a camera guy, right? So most people who are climbing that high into the death zone, they're not being bothered with taking photographs, right? Like you're taking three or four breaths for every step that you take. There's an incredibly complex obstacle you face at the base of Everest called the Kumbu Icefall. You're playing Russian roulette with your life in there. It's known as the Savage Mountain. I mean, K2, in comparison to Everest, I mean, Everest kind of feels like Disneyland. All of a sudden, it's like, I see the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, stepping towards me. And I'm just thinking, holy crap, it's the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and, and I didn't record. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So our first guest is a climber, cinematographer, filmmaker, journalist, mountaineer, and explorer who has survived everything from avalanches to earthquakes while telling stories about some of the most dangerous places on earth. And what's really amazing is that he has done something that very few people have been able to do. He's gone to these places all while carrying a camera, showing people locations and experiences that very few people have ever seen. This is documentary filmmaker Elia Sakely. How did you get started in this? Was it a love of the mountains? Was it a love of filmmaking? Like, what do you think was the main thing that brought you in? My entry point to high altitude mountaineering and being a filmmaker really started out with a chance phone call. I was 26 at the time. I had already been in the industry for six or seven years. I got into working with cameras because my dad was an enthusiast. So I grew up around cameras and I wasn't quite feeling fulfilled in my life. And I just knew that there had to be something more for me. And I got this phone call. It was completely random. And a friend of mine called me up who's a producer. And I get this question, which was, do you want to go to Everest? I need a camera guy. And that was it. And, and I'm like, I don't even know where Everest is. I've barely traveled the world. I've, I've never been to that part of the world specifically. Didn't know a thing about mountaineering. And I just said, yes, it was this crazy idea. And I just thought, I mean, how could I possibly say no? When you got to Everest and realized what Everest was, were you like, oh, shit? <laughs> or were you, did you feel ready for it? I mean, I was clueless. I'm not going to lie. I, I was completely clueless. I, I was really young. I was naive. I came from a sport background. So when you combine sort of the, the mental toughness capacity that I had at that time with my bodybuilding background and sport in general, and then somebody who could handle the camera, it just seemed like an obvious fit to this person. So did I know what I was getting myself into? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was very overwhelming, right? Everything from the environment to the culture to the exposure of altitude, every single component of that was overwhelming to me at the time. And it's important to say as well that my assignment was not to climb Everest. My assignment was to film a friend of mine's journey who was, he was trying to be the oldest Canadian to summit Everest. So my job was to go to base camp. And then I trained his climbing partner, who's Sherpa. 
So we trained him to use the camera. And then the job was, you know, Chumbi, the, the local Nepalese climber, he would climb to the summit with Sean and film. And my job was film all the way to base camp. When, when you look at a lot of films, you know, about Everest and about climbing, are most of them filming right up to the top? Or are you one of the few people who do, who do that, does that? Whatever the proper English would be in that regard. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I think it's fair to say that there are a select few of us who do it really well, right? When you're talking about filming to the top of Everest, you're talking about working in the death zone. And the death zone is this environment above 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet above sea level. So it's an area where you're literally deteriorating faster than you can recover. So you're dying, right? So most people who are climbing that high into the death zone they're not being bothered with taking photographs, right? Like you're taking three or four breaths for every step that you take. So as a result of that, you know, you really need a certain kind of individual who can perform in those environments just as a climber and then stack the complex task of filming, telling stories, worrying about sound and video and chasing talent in this environment that's incredibly hostile it's a very difficult job to do, and there are not a lot of us that can do it. Like when you do the filming, are you kind of scouting locations? Like, I've got to set my camera up here. i got to be in this place. Hey, wait right there. Let me get this film. Or you just got to like, you take everything as it can go, and you get what you can and make the most out of it later. It, it all depends on where you are, right? So as you're trekking to base camp, that's, let's say, a 10-day journey. So it's very comfortable it's controlled. There are you know, beautiful trails and lodges, which are the equivalent of little hotels. So we call them tea houses. And you have a lot of support and it's, it's an environment that you control. So there's a lot that you can do from a storytelling standpoint. The second that you leave base camp, then the whole game changes. That's where the climb actually begins. And for the most part, people are not willing to stop for you. Right. So it's very complicated and you really have to stay on the path because it's incredibly dangerous. There are crevices, there are hidden crevices under snow bridges you don't see. There's an incredibly complex obstacle you face at the base of Everest called the Kumbu Icefall. You're playing Russian roulette with your life in there, right? You're, you're like an ant navigating this ice fortress and these giant size pieces of ice known as seracs. These things are collapsing. You've got crevices with ladders you need to cross. Like it, it sounds insane yeah. just saying it, but, but that's, yeah. that's the environment that you work in. So this idea of plotting your shots. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You do plot some shots out, but when it, when it really comes down to it, you have to stay on the path because it's incredibly dangerous. And when you get to the final summit day, you're really racing against the clock. Nobody wants to stop for you. You race against the clock because you've got this tiny window where you can sneak up to the summit, touch the top, and get down as quick as possible. And so as a storyteller and filmmaker, you're fighting against all those elements. And you really have to understand that environment, know yourself well, be super competent as an athlete and a creative, and just work with all those obstacles stacked on top of you at the same time to make sure you get the shots, you do as much as you can with quality, you don't put yourself in harm's way, you don't put anyone else in harm's way, and most importantly, you get yourself and then everyone on your team down safely. Do you feel like you've captured Everest in the sense that like, if I stuck at home, can't go there at all, your videos and films and stories 
really shows people what it's like? Or is that just as close as we can get? I would like to think that I've done a pretty good job at showing the beauty of Everest in a way that we don't often see. I'm a person who becomes obsessed with the things that I love. And one of the things that I obsessed over was time-lapse photography. So when most people are sleeping on Everest, for example, which is what you should be doing because you have to recover, I'm out every night when the sky is clear and I'm recording tens of thousands of images throughout the season to capture that magic of the night skies. So you don't see a lot of that online. I think I'm, I'm one of, um, there are a number of us that do this, but I, I think that that aspect of my work really translates the beauty of that environment. The other piece, which, which I think is incredibly rare, and you know, there's a video that it, it kind of blew my mind. I mean, it's got like 15 million views on it on YouTube, and I never expected it to go wildly viral like that. But I think it has because it, it's really showing the upper part of that mountain in a way that is just raw, real, brutal, unfiltered. You know, there's no filmmaking gimmickry. There's no music and voiceover and fast editing. It's just you're there, you're hanging out on the side of the mountain, you're seeing people suffering, you know, dressed like spacemen, wearing oxygen masks, and my camera just sits there and observes this. So from that standpoint, I think I've done a fairly good job at really putting people there so they can feel what it's like. I watched that, and one of the things that kind of jumped out at me about it was the guy, he's dressed in yellow. I'm sure there's a lot of people dressed in yellow, but he's just, he's just sitting there like, And then he finally takes a step. Is that like every single step there? That is the most extreme version of extreme altitude. And, and that guy is a friend of mine. And what's really crazy about that scene is so I'm standing on what's called the Hillary step in that moment. And, and for the listeners that don't know the history, the Hillary step is the crux of the climb. And the crux is a technical climbing term for the most difficult part. So imagine in 1953, you have Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. These are the first two men to summit Everest. This was the final frontier. It had never been accomplished before. And so they pioneered this you know, 10 meter high rock face at 28,700 feet above sea level. So I wanted to, to film from, from that iconic spot on Everest. And what's crazy, what you don't see in the video is there's a 7,000 foot drop right behind me. And my friend, Masood literally leans on me in that moment and he's exhausted and I'm feeling him and we have a great relationship and he just leans on me and takes a breath and puts his hand down on my knee. I was wondering whose hand that was. <laughs> and and you can, what's beautiful about that moment is you can really feel the trust between us and you know he just felt safe enough to just lean on me and he knew I had his back and I'm the camera guy right and so I'm filming all this and you know, it's, it's important to let people know as well that, you know, when you watch a video like that, it's not just me doing that. There's, there's a highly orchestrated operation happening in order to make that happen. And that's a combination of the guides who are guiding the expedition, my Sherpa film crew, so the Nepalese high-altitude climbers that support my efforts. And, and quite frankly, like, they are the unsung heroes of Mount Everest. They, they make it all happen. They're the guys that you know, open up the route and fix the lines and, and transport equipment. And, and in my case, as a filmmaker, I can't do it without them. And it's this symbiotic relationship where it's just orchestrated. We knew that we wanted to film from that spot. 
And so everybody was on board with that. And when this guy got to that moment, he, he knew that I was there. I raced ahead. I sat on that iconic spot for a couple minutes and I waited for the team to arrive. So what you see may look simple to a degree, but it's, there was a lot of thought that went into that. And, and to do it safely is the most important part. And, and, and that's just a lot of people supporting this idea. And the community online gets to enjoy Mount Everest in that way as a result. Follow up that really good answer with this question. Like, so do you have gloves on? Like, how are you pressing, <laughs> how are you pressing record? It's insane, man. Like uh, I'm first of all, so my father's Lebanese. Um, I'm born Canadian. Um, mother's Canadian. And I grew up in Ottawa, Canada. So the cold is not something that's unique to us. Yeah. Here, right. When we're th- yeah. three or four years old, our parents throw us outside in snowsuits and they're like, okay, go play. And it's minus 20. So, so we're used to it. And, you know, in, in that moment, yes, I have gloves on. Um, but, you know, as a high altitude cinematographer, my hands are, are constantly at risk. It's very dangerous. And I never fully appreciated being Canadian and our Canadian winters until I really started to think about it and recognize the advantage that I had working in these extreme environments when it's minus 20, because I can only shoot with thin, thin gloves on. So I often, you know, depending how cold it is, if it's really cold, I have to take off the big down mitt. I will have the liner gloves on. I'll usually have hand warmers inside those gloves. And then I pull the camera out and then I pop the battery in, get focus, get the shot, roll, then reverse engineer everything, put everything away, stick the camera back on my shoulder and then keep running upwards. So it's, it, it's a very complex, difficult thing to do, but... It's kind of my obsession. I love it. And um, I think the payoff is amazing when you can share that part of the world with people. So you're actually doing it handheld. I thought maybe like, okay, he's just, he's got like a good GoPro rig or something on there. When you get up to the very tip, you're doing, damn. Well, well with, with my professional background, like I often tell people I'm a storyteller, not a climber. So I started out in the film and television industry long before I got into climbing. So for me, when I'm part of these professional productions, GoPros have their place for sure. But I've got a, I've got the lightest, heaviest rig that I can manage up there. So often if you see a photograph of me behind the scenes, I've I've got a, you know, fairly significant, you know, mirrorless camera with an onboard microphone with lots of batteries. My climbing partner, Pasang Kaji, has got the other half of the batteries. We've got a tripod as well. We've got backup cameras. And in this day and age, it's amazing because you've got lightweight drones, lightweight gimbals, mirrorless cameras, you know, providing incredibly high quality images. So so we push that tech to its extreme in that environment. And then your mental focus and physical capacity all combined allow you to actually record and create images. And in my case, I'm also tracking story. So I, I'm, I'm looking for content. I, I have to be aware of where the talent's at and what they're going through and, and how what's unfolding relates to the story that we're telling. And oftentimes I'm shooting documentaries. So it, it's just not enough to just record images. You got to record images with great sound, with high quality, and the content has to fit into the overall story you're telling. Is there a spot on the mountain and mountain in general terms, right? Like, but is there a spot where generally like, oh, this is going to be the hardest place? Anything in the death zone is hard, right? You're dying up there. You can't survive. Life cannot exist up there. And it is incredibly taxing on the body. And it's, it's important to help people understand as well that, you know, it, in the death zone, once, once you reach this area, approximately 7,000 meters, 7,500 meters, sometimes lower, 
you begin breathing supplemental oxygen through a mask in a tank that's you know on your back and and the the local Nepalese high altitude workers you know often referred to as the Sherpa teams I mean these guys there's mass coordination to ensure that you've got extra oxygen as well in the tents and the food so so everything above 8,000 meters is difficult absolutely everything and it's also important for the, the listener to understand that there, there are multiple ways that you can climb Everest, right? Like everything we've talked about so far, this is this is from the south side in Nepal. So Everest straddles the, the Chinese-Tibetan border and the Nepalese border. So you can climb from the north side, you can climb from the south side, which is everything that we've been talking about. And then you've got much harder routes as well that less than 1% of people attempt. But in this particular case, yeah, everything above the death zone is incredibly difficult the most dangerous part of the mountain is is what's called the Kumbu Icefall. And it's this flowing river of ice that begins to fold upon itself. Is there a spot on the mountain that like nobody's ever been able to film or photograph or anything like, nope, we're not screwing around here. Like, not that you're screwing around, but you know what I mean, right? Like nobody's ever seen this before. I, I mean, I would say I've got a couple ideas in my mind that, that I would love to pull off. I, you know, I said earlier, I was, I'm a bit of a time-lapse obsessed nut. So I, I, I often have four or five cameras running all night long. I've never seen imagery from the summit. I've never seen time-lapse imagery from the summit at night. I've never seen night photography, like really good night photography from the final ridge on Everest. So that that's from the south summit to the summit of Everest. So those are things that we don't see a lot of. The other thing we don't see a lot of are the most difficult routes on Everest. So, you know, for example, the West Ridge or, you know, very complex, what we call lines. So these are the the paths that you choose to, to climb up to the summit. Most people climb the easiest route, which which makes sense. You want to keep things safe and, and maximize your odds of success. The purest climbers, like the really crazy people who, who don't often have, you know, the, the big social media accounts or who, who aren't always in the blockbusters, they're doing really crazy stuff where they're going up unclimbed routes, new routes, um, doing things solo by themselves. And so imagery from those areas and video from those areas is pretty rare to come by. The thing for me, right? Like sitting in my Seattle basement, you know, the stuff that I've seen off of Everest is like the huge long lines. Is it still like that where it almost seems like a tourist place in some ways, right? Is it still like that? Is that changing? Is that an old thing or? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. So in 2019, I was producing, directing, and shooting a film called The Dream of Everest. And the documentary is going to be released next year, actually. And we were at the center of that crazy unfolding on top of the world where you had hundreds of people that went for the top at the same time. We, we've all seen that image. And yes, I mean, that's, that's reality up there. And every year, more and more people are wanting to attempt Everest. And the, the reason that happened in 2019, you know, it's, it, it's a bit of a complex unfolding here, but essentially, you know, you have a weather window on Everest. So what you do is, you know, throughout this one week, which is, you know, traditionally unfolding that last week of May. So let's say May 20th to 25th historically, that's when the good weather exists. And because it takes you six or seven weeks to climb Everest, what you need to do is back time your expedition from around May 20th. And so right now you've got people early spring heading to base camp and they know that they're going to 
shoot for the summit around May 20th. That varies, of course, sometimes earlier, sometimes a bit later, sometimes there are multiple windows. In that case, there was a very narrow window of two days or so uh, with an extra day on the end and some days before, but the majority of people went for it all at the same time. And, and, and that's what created that congestion. And the other thing that complicates this a little bit more is that there are also key areas on a mountain where you're, you're naturally going to see a lot of congestion and they call these areas a, a bottleneck. So they're often very technical areas where you just can't move quickly. And so naturally, if you get somebody in a line, they're going to slow down. That's going to cause this ripple effect for a lot of people who then have to wait for that person. And so you start to see these, these lineups build. The other piece of it is that, let's say for every three or 400 permits and climbers that want to climb Everest, you have to imagine too that then that means there are five or 600 potential local Nepalese climbers, Sherpas and other cast members who who are up on the mountain as well. So you're talking about eight, 900 people climbing Everest at the same time, in addition to all of the support staff that doesn't climb that lives at base camp. So, you know, there are, there are over a thousand people uh, living at Mount Everest base camp throughout any given season. You know, and again, like, like this is me as a bystander. And I ask this question with no judgment or any kind of words with that. Like, is it, is it a bad thing? That there's that many people lined up. I mean, you look at it and like your first reaction is like, oh, the sacred place. And there's just a line of tourists. But is it right? Like, I guess, what do you think? Is, is, is it a bad thing? Is it, is it that's just how it is? It's complicated is probably my best answer. And, and we'll unpack this in our documentary. But, you know, to, to answer that high level for you personally, naturally, I don't think it's a good thing, obviously. You know, Everest in some ways has lost its charm. It has lost its magic. And yeah, I mean, it's it's hardly the purest experience that it once was. It has become highly commercialized, which is not necessarily a good thing. And yet at the same time, you know, the other lens that you need to look at it through is that it's providing incredible opportunity for local people, right? Like the local people that work on that mountain are now the ones that are running businesses. They're earning their income, they're putting their children through school uh, and feeding their families and creating opportunity for themselves. So from that standpoint, if you think, well, if we changed all that and took all that away, then what would happen? So I, I think perhaps the, you know, the, the better way to look at it and to ask is, well, how can we make this all better? Now, you filmed on other mountains as well, though, right? Are they becoming like that too? Yeah. I mean, it, it all depends on your style, right? We talk about style a lot in, in climbing and it's important to differentiate, right? Like you have classic rock climbing, you have ice climbing, and then you have high altitude mountaineering. You've got hardcore true climbers who don't go anywhere near Mount Everest, who are doing things without even telling people they're out in the Alpine, they're doing it as difficult as possible, you know, making it as hard as possible on themselves. So, so that exists. Um, and then you've got the other side. So, um, with these other mountains, yes, I mean, we are seeing the commercialization of other mountains as well, right? Like one, one of the popular challenges is something called the Seven Summits. So this is the highest mountain on every continent. And this, this was a challenge that was created by two businessmen, actually, uh, Dick Bass and Frank Wells. And it, it was just a, the ultimate adventure between two friends. And they popularized this. And then you have quite a number of people that set out to as and aspire to, to claim the seven summits. It is getting busier. 
I spent the last uh, year of my life working on a project on K2. And K2 is the second highest mountain on the planet. It's known as the Savage Mountain. I mean, K2, in comparison to Everest, I mean, Everest kind of feels like Disneyland in comparison to K2. It's, 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 it's the Wild East. It's incredibly volatile, very dangerous, unforgiving. It has a death rate of you know, one in four people who summit die on descent right so this is this is how serious you know these mountains can be and and we are beginning to see commercialization even in pakistan on k2 so yes uh it is it is becoming more and more commercialized but you do have the option right you you can stay you know clearly away from all of those peaks and and just do smaller peaks 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 meter mountains. There are a whole slew of options, uh, you know, for the the person that wants to climb mountains. So, you know, get into the heavier kind of stuff, I guess. You've lost friends. Like, what is that? How do you keep doing it when you know the toll that it has taken on some people? Yeah. Um, I ask myself that question all the time. And you begin to look at the statistics, and the longer you continue to expose yourself to these environments, the higher the likelihood is at some point your luck's going to run out. And I have survived multiple incidents. You know, in 2015, I got hit by an avalanche on Mount Everest at base camp and over 18 people died that day. And across Nepal, almost 10,000 people, if not more, died that day because of the earthquake. And on Everest, it triggered an avalanche and it completely wiped out central base camp. So you had this 1,500 foot tidal wave of snow that just came down, obliterated central base camp and made its way out to the exterior edges of camp. And it was a war zone, man. And, you know, at one point I, I had bodies piled up in my, my tent it was insane. I, my, my friend died during the aftermath. Um, you know, it, it was, it was just absolutely horrific. And base camp is the area where you're supposed to be protected. And I've got this camera and, you know, I'm, I'm observing all this unfolding, trying to decide, okay, like, what is my role here? Is my role to be a documentarian, a storyteller, or is my role to be on the front lines helping people? And, and so it becomes a, a very complex situation. And, I have been exposed to these situations over and over and over again in the mountains. And I, because of the nature of my job and the stories I tell, you know, I am a journalist of sorts as well. I, I, I got to chase the stories. And so I, I find myself very close to tragedy time and time again. And you, you reach a point where you begin to inherit that trauma as well, because these are incredibly difficult circumstances and then you inherit vicarious trauma, you know, the pain yeah. that others yeah. go through because you're telling those stories. And, and oftentimes I found myself the person in the middle who's relaying information to families of the deceased because, you know, there's crazy stuff happening up here uh, on top of the world and, and the families at home don't know what's going on. And I'm one of these people that bridges that gap at times. And ultimately, I, I have definitely asked myself... I don't know how long I can keep doing this because at some point my luck will run out. That's what I've always wondered, right? In that kind of circumstances, like obviously it's dangerous. People know they're not coming back. Do people though really, does it seem to really weigh on them? Like, oh, I might really not be coming back. 
do they seem to know what they're really getting into? I would say the people with experience come to terms with the fact that there's a high possibility that they can die. And so those that are self-aware, that have spent a lot of time in these environments, who are often either, you know, local Nepalese climbers, Sherpas, for example, um, you know, the best guides in the world, uh, filmmakers like myself who are constantly exposed to these environments, you have to be prepared for the worst. And, and I always say, I plan to fail, right? Naturally, I'm optimistic. I want to succeed. Of course, I want to survive, but I need to be ready for anything. And I need to train my mind to be in a place where I can respond and react calmly when shit hits the fan and bad things start to unfold. I would say that it's probably a fair statement that somebody who's fairly new at this pretends that that's not reality. And I think that that's a mistake. Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Absolutely. Is Everest still is Everest? Everest? No. What, what do you think is going to replace it? I don't think that the allure of Everest will ever change. And it's, it, it's like it's just hardwired in us because of its symbolism, right? It, it has that image of the, 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 the ultimate achievement because there is no higher place on the planet where we can place our feet. So, so for that reason, it, it will always retain... Uh, you know, it, it, it's value. It's, it's, you know, Chomaluma. It's the mother goddess of the earth. It's the highest, you know, point on the planet. Uh, what will replace it? I don't know. I, I don't think anything can ever replace Mount Everest. Does filming things ruin the experience for you? And I think what they mean by the sense of like, if kind of like if you're watching through a lens, are you still watching it? Like, does it feel like I was there? I've asked myself that question many times where I've pondered, am I really a part of this experience as an observer? And I've questioned that because particularly when you're obsessed with detail in the way that I am with, you know, sound and light and picture and lenses and content and, you know, all these technical details, for sure, it takes you out of the present moment. But the beauty of it is that in another way, it really immerses you in the present moment in a way that is incredibly unique. And I have to say, you know, the camera for me has been the greatest gift I have ever received. And, and really, I have my father to thank for being exposed to it very young. And I say that, you know, as a filmmaker, particularly as a director of photography, you're the person who needs to be right there, right in the action, observing all of this. And so whether you appreciate it, like it or not, I mean, you're in it, man. You're absolutely in it. You're in rooms, you're in environments, you have access to story and people and knowledge and and you're you know all of a sudden in a place that you never imagined that you could be so when i take that versus am i really a part of this experience definitely i'm going to choose to be in these extraordinary places the other thing just the b part to that is that it's really important that you also live the experience consciously outside of that so the, these days when i go on an expedition it's like I'm doing this job, which is the thing that I love to do. But as soon as I hit cut, right, it's like I'm, it's all joy. It's joy. It's awe. It's wonder. It's shared experiences. It's creativity. And often on the front lines, you're having very different experiences in comparison to the person, in this case, for example, who's, who's, who's climbing only. And, and for me, that's the journey. And, you know, the summit really is, is kind of the cream on top right? Where it's, that's a bonus if you make it, but really it's everything else. 
that is the reason why I'm there. Have you ever left the lens cap on? <laughs> uh, haven't we all? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I have a funny story for you about that. One of the most treasured experiences that I've ever had was interviewing the Dalai Lama. And I had this incredibly privileged experience where a very good friend of mine, so his wife, and they were living in India at the time, uh, just outside His Holiness's temple in Dharamsala. And they asked me if I was game because I had essentially said to them, look, if, if ever you have a project and I can support you, just call me. So I get, I get this email, which was pretty wild. And, and she said, are you interested in, in helping us record this interview with the Dalai Lama? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, um, yes. So, so, so it, was, it was this amazing experience where I was in charge of the technical side of the production. And he set up five cameras and, and, and lit his room in his temple and, and, I don't get starstruck a whole lot. And I've, I've worked with, you know, sports celebrities and athletes making 40, $50 million a year and, you know, musicians and actors and, you know, mountain celebrities and you name it. Right. And it's like, you get, you get pretty used to it. You're pretty desensitized to it. And we're all human beings at the end of the day, but I was, I was pretty starstruck here. Right. Um, and I'm sitting in the, uh, in the doorway and all of a sudden it's like, I see the Dalai Lama, his holiness stepping towards me. And I'm just thinking, holy crap, it's the Dalai Lama. And, and I didn't record, right? And I was thinking I was recording and then I didn't record. And then I noticed the red button wasn't flashing and I thought, oh shit, and I you know, hit, hit that red button. But it was just one of these amazing moments where it was like, wow, like all that sacrifice, you know, every crazy thing I ever did, you know, all these chances I took on believing in myself, creating this career that everybody said I was wasting my time. It was too risky. I should get a real job. And then all of a sudden it's like, you're filming his holiness and you're in this room with him and you're having this amazing conversation and do the cameras like that environment or are they like hey man it's 50 to blow like do you run into a lot of technical problems up there absolutely yeah and and i always say you know it's it, it's not necessarily the camera's fault right oftentimes it's it's user error right like i when i was on top of everest so i've summited everest four times now and uh, I'm actually, uh, I've got the Canadian record for that, apparently. So, so on, on the last um, expedition that I was on, you know, there was this moment where the batteries were just dropping from 100 to zero in a couple of seconds. And, and this is like the most important part of the climb, right? We're, we're just below the Hillary step. And there's, you know, a, a, I would say 10 or 12 people right in front of me. And all of my batteries are dead. And Pesan Kaji, who's, who's my rock star climbing partner and, and best buddy. So PK Sherpa is his name. So he's at the back of the line. I'm at the Hillary step. I'm running out of batteries. And, and imagine this comical scene where I'm like, PK! <laughs> I started, you know, we didn't have radios. We should have had radios. But so I, I'm, I'm hollering at him in a good way to bring me the batteries. And he's such a rock star, which all these guys are rock stars, that he climbs up onto what they call the cornice, right? So, so imagine these rib spires of frozen ice at 28,600 feet above sea level. PK climbs over everybody, front points his way with his spikes, which are, which are your crampons, climbs over everybody, fully exposed, drops down, goes into his breast pocket, hands me a battery. So, so it's just like, this is, this is the kind of stuff that happens sometimes. You know, everything fails, 
cameras fail, batteries fail, things freeze, sensors, shutters, you know, everything goes wrong. And it's really important just to have backup plans. So if you, if you go into my backpack, I've, I've got GoPros there. I've got an extra mirrorless, you know, PK, who's my right hand man, you know, he's got extra backup equipment because we can't come back without the images. Do other climbers get mad at you because they're struggling and you're filming them and also doing this while holding a camera? <laughs> I have had moments where, where people have made jokes. I mean, we have to keep it light. Right, yeah. Right? In right. the beginning, when I started doing this, it was like, oh, you know, this is life or death and it's really dramatic. You know, and, and you kind of get to the point 17 years later where if you're not having fun, you really shouldn't be there. So, so we keep it pretty light and... You know, for the most part, the expeditions, at least that I film, um, we tend to have more experience and in some cases vastly more experience. So we have an easier time because of our, our, our experience on the mountain. And oftentimes I've been filming people with PK chasing me. And, and, and again, full credit to our, our Nepalese film crew who tolerate my antics, where when I move, there are two or three other guys that have to move with me. And so the talent that were being filmed kind of laugh at the situation and think, okay, this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, they're chugging up the line. And meanwhile, you got three guys that are going up faster, sometimes backwards, you know, f filming everything that's unfolding. Um, so, it, so it is comical when you look at it from that standpoint sometimes. Um, and, and at other times, and, and this, is, this is important to say, and it's, it's something that I've had to become good at, where everybody's on board traditionally when things are going right right? We, we want to be part of whatever it is that's unfolding. The harder part is when things start to go wrong. And as a storyteller, there's this saying, and I hang on to it, which is the most important stories are the most difficult to tell, right? And I've been in countless situations where even the people that I respect and who respect me became very angry with me at times because I had the foresight in that moment to know that What's unfolding as difficult as it is, is incredibly important. In some cases, historically important. And the outside world needs to understand what's happening here or whatever other complex factor related to our project. So I've been under a number of uh, situations where, yeah, I mean, things are very difficult and it's very hard to film when things are going wrong. And I have had to become very good at that. And, and I think that the nature of some of the projects I've got my hands in Everest 2019 being one of them, and my last project on K2, they're, they're two projects where when it was at its worst, when it was all at its most complex, not only was I rolling, I was climbing, I was managing the situation in some, in some circumstances, and helping other people at the same time as well. Let's, let's, follow, let's follow that up with, how do you feel about the movie Cliffhanger? <laughs> I love, I love Sylvester Stallone. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. It's, it, it, it's like, uh, you know, that film on K2 where there are explosions happening, vertical limit, oh, explosions yeah. happening. And I mean, hilarious, right? I mean, that, that is clearly not what really happens. That's Hollywood at its finest and at its best. So, you know, you got to accept that for what it is, I suppose. For, for me, I find it highly entertaining. Is there, though, a Hollywood movie that like, ooh, that's what it's like? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think so. I mean, there's obviously a vast difference between the type of work I do, which, which is reality. It's high reality and documentary work versus fiction. Um, one of the really interesting parts of my career is that 
people license my footage. So there isn't a lot of it. So oftentimes a lot of the productions on Everest, the producers will come to me looking for my footage. So you've seen my footage on, you know, everywhere from, you know, CNN, Netflix, HBO, Discovery, the list goes on and on. And, and it's a real privilege to be able to do that. But specific to your question, the, the, the visual effects team from the Everest film uh, that was set uh, in Nepal during the 1996 disaster. Um, so the Hollywood film, it was, it was really interesting because the visual effects team reached out to me and they were looking for reference footage which I thought was really cool because the attention to detail was that, and, and they had heard this story where, uh, I guess, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, who I'm a huge fan of, so he, uh, apparently there's a story, and somebody else will have to confirm this, but this is what I heard, um, and, and he criticized the, the placement of the stars in the film Titanic. And so the visual effects team decided to use that as a benchmark, and they said, okay, we want to get everything right. We, we want to know what it looks like at Camp 4 at 9 o'clock p.m. at that specific time of year because we want our visual effects to accurately represent the reality of what Mount Everest really looks like. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's an incredible amount of detail because what you tend to see in these films, you see some really bad adaptations of mountain films because clearly they're not shooting up there with their actors uh, for the most part. And so I felt that they, they got a lot right in that film. If Neil deGrasse Tyson sent me that, I'd be like, come on, man. <laughs> man. Making a movie. And Leo could have fit on that door. And you know that. This is a little bit more heavier one, I guess. It's like, are there really bodies left on a lot of the mountains? Yes. Yes, there are. It is an unfortunate reality of 8,000 meter peaks more and more what tends to happen is that the people that are left behind due to tragic circumstances oftentimes you you have to understand the hostile nature of that environment to begin with and anytime that somebody attempts to recover a person that is deceased or even save somebody you have to remember that you can barely save yourself up there you can barely place one foot in front of the other up there and so to orchestrate a rescue operation to, to bring somebody down is just extremely dangerous. It is possible. People do it. I have been a part of a number of, of recoveries because of my exposure as, as a filmmaker. So I understand what goes into it. And, and it's often my Nepalese climbing partners uh, who are orchestrating some of those, um, those recoveries. For the most part, people have either been brought down or out of respect for the families and the deceased, They've been moved aside so that at least at minimum, they're, they're out of sight. But unfortunately, it, it, it is a tragic reality of that environment. And, and this is actually one of the topics that I get into in my film um, that is set on Everest from the 2019 climbing season. So that, that film will be released next year. And, and we, we do unpack that reality because 11 people lost their lives that year. Now, that, is that the... Was that one of the most that is ever at the same time? Was so the earthquake technically um, was the most. Um, th there was another avalanche that I was also present for, uh, unfortunately, in 2014, where 16 Sherpas lost their lives, and and I was actually trapped above this um, because of the, the 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 wreckage, which had uh, completely destroyed the Kumbu Icefall, the route, and so we couldn't get down. And it was just, it was, it was tragic because 16 Sherpas lost their lives. How do you feel about drones? 
And I think this person both means in the sense of like, are they good for filming and should they be up there? Drones are incredible technology. They're, they're a tool in my toolkit. I'm a huge advocate of flying drones responsibly. So in the Everest region, naturally you, you have to be permitted. You want to do it legally. You want to do it safely. You want to be really careful in that you have to plan for things that can potentially go wrong. You know, drones drop from the sky sometimes. And, and when you're dealing with extreme altitude and the cold, especially, you know, there's all kinds of mechanical failure um, that is possible. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick example here. I, I was on K2 this past summer and I was climbing K2 in winter, making a documentary about a team who were attempting K2 as the last unconquered 8,000 meter mountain in winter. So I was telling the story of Sajid and Ali Sapara, as well as an Icelandic climber named John Snorri. And they disappeared near the summit of K2 and they never returned. And we were supposed to be with them. And we were just a, a couple of hundred meters below them, Pisankaji and I and, um, and our climbing friend Fazel. And we turned back because there was an oxygen mix-up. We couldn't find our oxygen. So I was very conservative. Pasang agreed. We made this collective decision. We turned around. The next season, we went back with Sajid, the son who survived, and I flew my drone at 8,300 meters above sea level. Hey, I can fly that high? Damn. I, I launched from 7,900 meters, kind of hoping for the best. I had a couple of drones with me, and, and you buy these drones thinking like, okay, I mean, no one else is around here, so if it drops, it drops and we lose it. But yeah, I, I launched it from 7,900 meters, and I flew it up to the area known as the bottleneck. And so this is the most dangerous obstacle, arguably in, in all of you know these 8,000 meter peaks. And, and it, it's, it's just this like, gigantic piece of ice that feels like it's on top of a mountain and, and you need to climb under this thing. And if anything comes down, you're dead, Yeah. right? And, yeah. and it's highly exposed. And so I flew the drone from 7,900 meters to 8,300 meters looking for our missing friends. And so as a, as a tool, I mean, it's invaluable up there. It's, it's incredible where the tech has gone. And I look at, at all tech as valuable as long as you use it responsibly, particularly with drones, which, which can injure people if, if you're not responsible. Were you able to find them? Yeah, we did. It, it was, and this is the, this is the topic of, of my last film, uh, K2, The Calling, which, uh, which is in post-production at the moment. We did find them. And I mean, it's kind of a crazy story on its own where, you know, there was a 13 or 14 day search and rescue operation after they disappeared and the Pakistan military got involved. And at one point, the pilots who are friends of mine invited me to come up into the cockpit with them and to photograph what they thought could have been our missing friends. And, and so, you know, imagine me, I'm, I'm there with my cameras. I get this request via my satellite device and, you know, the Icelandic, Chilean and Pakistani governments are working together with satellite imagery and they identified a few objects that matched in the color of our friends' down suits. And the next thing you know, I'm up in this helicopter with these Pakistani pilots photographing what could be our friends. We were unsuccessful on that attempt. We never found them. But when we went back in the summertime, a couple of days actually after I flew the drone, our friends were found. And, and I was there with Ali Sapara's son, Sajid. And Sajid had an opportunity to bury his father at 8,000 meters above sea level. I, I couldn't live with the idea that 
there was this possibility that his father could be found and that he would not be on the mountain as that was unfolding. It's, it's crazy stuff, you know, and, and, and that's what I spent the last year working on. And, and that's one of my documentaries that's coming out in the next year and a half or so. I have no brilliant statement to follow that story up. <laughs> that's, one of, that's one of those where I just keep my mouth closed. <laughs> you know, I got into this 17 years ago, not having a clue that I would ever land where I've landed today. And, and I'm so grateful that I have had the, the privilege of being a part of these stories and having the support of people who have believed in these stories. And it's as difficult as it's been, it, it's, it's just been life altering. And, and I really go into these things, not, not for, you know, the glory or the, the, the physical conquest. It's like, I'm, I'm really trying to tell stories that matter. I'm really trying to make a difference with my work. I want people who you know are a part of these stories to feel inspired. I want them to learn new things. I want them to you know examine themselves after hearing some of these stories and ask themselves, okay, that's maybe that's a little bit you know I don't want to ever do that, but you know what can I learn from that and what can I apply from some of those lessons and apply to my own life and what dreams am I capable of achieving? And and when I look at it through that lens, it, it's so incredibly worthwhile and and it's. It's an amazing feeling to know that that the thing that you're doing that is the thing that you love is positively impacting people on the other side. And that really keeps me motivated to to continue to do all this. What advice would you give for somebody kind of looking to be the next you? Do something else. (laughs) (laughs) That's, yeah, that's how you know it's a hard career, right? Yeah, um, no, on a serious note, I, I would say that, I always use the analogy that, you know, going on an expedition is like going on an adventure, right? And how many times in your life do you get to suit up, right? And to embark on an adventure where, you know, there are challenges and there are potential consequences and there's this potential treasure waiting for you on top of the mountain. And, and the treasure is not the conquest of getting to the top. You know, it, like the, the real treasure is, is what you learn about yourself while going through all of that. And it's these relationships that you form and it's what you learn along the way and it's cliche, but it's, it's really truly about the journey. So I would say, you know, to somebody, if you want to get into all this, you know, be really humble about it. It's so easy to look at images online and to think, oh, you know, if that person can do it, then I can do it. Well, what you don't always see is the 17 years of grinding and heartache and hardship and sacrifice and dedication and determination and everything else that comes along with it. So my advice is, you know, be humble in your approach to it. Be very responsible about how you do it. You know, graduate to the point of climbing Everest. So you, you know, it starts with education, learn as much as you can, take courses, go on small expeditions, gain experience. And then ultimately, when when you're ready to, to get to the big mountains, just make sure that you're responsible in terms of who you decide to hire to support your expedition. And you want to sync up, you know, your actual abilities you know, to the environment and make sure you have the right person that can guide you through that and the right company. As far as filmmaking goes, I mean, I always tell people like, you just got to shoot, right? You got to, you got to create, you got to get out there, you got to do it. And a friend of mine once told me, and and I never forgot this, and I was quite offended at the time. (laughs) Actually, I was quite young and I, and, and, you know, I'm, I sit in a position today, you know, after all this experience and I think it's important to be, you know, critical of of yourself 
and to self-examine and to have a level of self-awareness where, you know, when somebody says something to you, obviously, you know, if, if you're being offended by it or it's triggering something, well, well, maybe there's something to learn in there, right? As opposed to shut it down, not hear it. And this friend said to me, Elia, and I had all this ambition to, I want to be this great, you know, filmmaker. I want to climb Everest and make these movies. And, and he said, what have you done? Dang. Yeah. It's like, ah. <laughs> and it was like, oh, you know, I kind of hurt, but he was right, right? And 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 I remembered at the time, I wasn't horribly offended. I just thought, ouch, okay. Okay, well, what can I learn from that? Because I really respected this person. And and this guy had ran, you know, something like 100 expeditions to the Arctic and the Antarctic and, and was an accomplished explorer that worked with some of the best researchers and climate experts on the planet. And very, so it's like, I really listened to what he said. And I thought, okay. I'm going to show you what I've done. I'm going to gain experience. I'm going to get out. I'm going to start shooting. And if I want to be this guy that people go to to film expeditions on Mount Everest, then I'm going to do everything that I have to do to gain that experience so that I'm, I'm good enough. I'm responsible enough. I'm capable. And, and it's, it's really about putting in the miles. You got to do the hard work. And so if, if you're ready for that, if you're ready for that commitment, hey, anything is possible. Right. It's it's really up to just believing that you can and being willing to put in the miles to get yourself to where you want to be. Um, that's pretty much all the questions we got. Is there anything else you think that we missed or what's kind of coming up next for you? Where can people find you? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, I mean you find me on Instagram, um, at Eliasakley, Eliasakley.com is my my website on Facebook, uh, TikTok, all the channels. Uh, what's next for me? I've got a couple exciting expeditions. Nobody really knows this yet, but I'm I'm leaving Everest in a week and a half for another assignment. The most exciting stuff that I got going on at the moment is I have two really exciting films in the pipeline that I have really poured my heart and soul into. I feel they're really important films. One is called The Dream of Everest. The other is called K2, The Calling. So it'll take a little while to get those through post-production, but you know, really encourage people to, to check those out. And, and maybe just in closing, I would say that it's just so important to approach these environments with deep respect, you know, deep, deep respect, and to show up responsibly and to respect the environment, to respect the local people who are the unsung heroes of the Himalaya. And I think you, you really can't go wrong if you approach the mountains that way. You know, we, you have to respect nature. You have to recognize that there are consequences to your actions if you sh show up irresponsibly. And if you line all that up and you do it right, I'll tell you, like, it is life-changing. It changed my life going up there. I feel like it is such a gift. And so much of what I do is about giving back and passing that gift on because I know the potential to have someone's life changed by way of experience in these environments. So that would be, that would be in closing what I would say to people. I want to thank Elias so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. And we have also included his information in the episode description. We've also put links to some of his videos on there, which are just amazing to watch because you really do get to you get the sense that you're actually at these places it's 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 really cool it is okay now let's bring in john shaw and get to the pointless part of the show all right man 200 episode <laughs> god dang it oh uh, yes of course right like i was gonna try to be cool 
Was that it? Are you, are you, after the botched intro, are you just moving forward? I'm just trying to, right? I've got to, I got to deflect. Well, what do I got for the first time? I'm, I'm, I'm almost centered. Uh, I have a nice background, uh, and you know what I don't really understand is that we've put a lot of effort into like you and I getting a background and all this kind of stuff, but we've never actually put any of the visual part of it online. <laughs> I, I've wondered that, but you know what? Which you're doesn't the... really make a lot of sense. When I think you're, you're the driver, so I, you know, I, you do edit the uh, the top five snippets for uh, most of the that socials, which are awesome. You know, we're gonna start doing that as of uh, May 11th. So this episode, it only took us three and a half years to, uh, to I don't know, but uh, get our shit together. But here we are. Listen, I don't want to hear it from the guy who took 125 episodes before he got a microphone. 126. Still talking into it. Still think that's pretty. <laughs> Have you ever actually gone back and like listened to it and be like, what's it going to sound like when I talk into the microphone like this? Of course I have. Are you, are you a big day commemorator, right? Like, do you celebrate anniversaries of things and like look forward to, oh, it's going to be the fifth year since I've been doing this? I mean, I want to say no, but then, then if it comes up, if I, I find myself uh, as being one. So yeah, I, I guess I am. I, uh, can I say I'm like, uh, like a pretend I don't care, but I really do care. Uh, date person. Yeah, I could see you secretly being like, "Oh, honey, but it's the fifth anniversary of our second date, and you didn't give me anything." Like I could see hey. you being like, "No, it's not," blowing it off completely, then being upset, like pouting in bed, like you're not going to roll over to snuggle. Like you go in and put your back <laughs> to her. You know, you forgot what day it is, didn't you? But you're going to act like it's not a big deal. Are you passive aggressive in relationships? Yes, actually, qu- quite a bit. Um, Me too. Oh, I am un- too. Un- unknowingly, I guess. Yeah, I get called out on it, out on it a lot, but uh, yeah, I'm passive aggressive. I'm pretty passive aggressive, more in the sense that I'm just gonna kind of be a little different until somebody asks me like, "What's wrong?" But I'm not gonna well, say anything. What's wrong? Do you want to tell everybody what's wrong? No, I mean I don't I can't think of honestly the last time that something happened that I was upset about it. But if I am upset about something, I'm going to be a little bit like oh. Is that is that your angry sound? Just <sighs> No, I'll maybe like cuss under my breath to myself a little bit. But what's odd because I'm not a passive aggressive person in other aspects of life. It's really only in relationships that I'm a little bit like <laughs> doing this again, huh? Get, you get a little aggressive, maybe a little pushy. No. I mean, I'm not beating my wife if that's what you're fucking <laughs> What are you trying? No, what are you listen, doing over there? Speaking this... of, I, I nailed, uh, I had to nail this First Mother's of all, Day, first of all, I nailed don't, don't transition from that to speaking <laughs> of, I nailed. And then everybody's going to be like, what? What? True. I, speaking of dates, I, I think I nailed Mother's Day this year, and all I did was listen to her. Yeah, dude, that's that's honestly the only thing I have to do if I'm in trouble is to clean something. <laughs> like, ooh, I'm going to clean this pantry. I'm right back in the golden spot. Right back. Getting sex to every two weeks instead of every month now. Right, right. Listen, we've been married for <laughs> seven years now. If Quite right. Like... Do you want to have sex? Man, <laughs> something good on TV right now. I was going to watch this YouTube video. <laughs> kind of crazy to think about. We've been doing this podcast 
half the time you've been married. Okay, do you think that we would have been farther ahead by now? Like, have we not? Have we accomplished more or less than you would have thought we would have accomplished by this time in the podcast? Yes, I thought we would have accomplished more, but that's because I didn't know how hard it was uh, to do it. You know, I thought it was just you have this great idea, you record it, people are going to listen. I mean, it's a whole production. I I would say that like I think that people who maybe are getting into it, like you don't realize how hard it is to like build something on your own. So for the listeners that we have, we really su- appreciate the support because we have some pretty cool listeners. I even count the bots, you know, the the random female bots that pretend to like our statuses. So because we've had some I don't know if anybody has ever like looked at our Twitter account because we have had some adult entertainment uh people on, <laughs> like we get flooded with some pretty interesting bots. Yeah. Yeah. You're like who's this? Oh, what is this? <laughs> We got a new follower. Oh wait, it's Irina from uh, Antarctica, but she's a, a stripper. So right, nothing wrong with that. If that's what you do. Just I don't think. No, it's no nothing wrong. It's just I don't think there's strippers in Antarctica. I'm sure there has been at one point. That's a somebody. Mm. You don't think anybody's ever mm. brought a stripper to Antarctica? No, I don't think so. What, what about somebody cool. here? I bet there's probably somebody. Here's what I think. I bet there is probably somebody that used to be a stripper or stripped at one point in their lives and then ended up in Antarctica and then maybe partying in Antarctica. Like, what else are you going to do when you're relaxing? Probably busted out some of those strip moves. So would that count as be having a stripper in Antarctica? No, I don't think so. I think you have to have an actual professional strip on Antarctica. What if they're doing it on the side? Then it needs to, then it needs to be declared, and there needs to be a decree that it is an official strip. They have to file taxes at some point. But if they file <laughs> taxes as an independent contractor, then you're okay. Then it then it classifies as being a stripper. Yeah, yeah. Does Antarctica even have its own government? I don't. Believe I don't know it how does. that works. I think we all kind of like agree on stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, anyways. I, maybe we could use our 200th uh, episode money and, and go down there and check it out. Isn't Antarctica above us? Above us, below us. I believe it's below us, technically. Well, it's both, I think. Is it? Is there another Antarctica? I'm. You know what? I, I'm, I'm going to stay away from this conversation. Wait a minute. Because is, I'm not there's sure. Antarctica, but is the, is the Arctic and Antarctica the same place? Well, when when I think of the Arctic, I think of the Arctic Ocean, which is it surrounds Antarctica. Huh. I feel like the Arctic and Antarctica must be two different places. I'm in the Arctic. You don't hear about people being in the Arctic, but you do hear a lot about people being in Antarctica. I'm pretty sure this is one of those questions where people are like, these guys are idiots. Of course, it's north. And then you look it up and you're like, oh, maybe it isn't. No, this is one of those things that you think you know until you think about it and then realize you have no idea. Let's see here. Or Let's you, see how, you know exactly. Here. Look uh, up if there's – is there two? Is there two Arctics? No, there is not. I don't think there is two Arctics. Uh, here we go. So the Arctic Circle is one of the two polar circles and the most northern of the five major circles of latitude. We are so fucking stupid. 
the, of course it's not the same place because the earth has – it's a sphere and there's like two tops. There's a top and a bottom. Why did we think that they mesh together? Anyways, we should probably just move on before the two two listeners we have just stop listening. No, we've had some good stuff. I mean, I have to, I have to commend you for wearing that shirt at least half the time while recording. This is my Monday shirt. This is my Monday shirt oh. and hoodie that I wear on Mondays. And we record on Mondays. This is my Monday shirt. You will record on Tuesdays. If you want to mix it up a little bit, then we got to record on other days. But this is my Monday shirt. Do you feel a little off if your Monday shirt is not ready to go on Monday? Why would it not be ready to go? That's not acceptable. That's not the kind of mistake that I make. The, I think this gets back. Who does the laundry, you or your wife? I do my own laundry. I'm a grown-ass man. Uh, okay. Do you put right, your clothes on. in with your wife's clothes? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do the load what together. The fuck. Once again, I don't think it's that weird. You do your clothes go in with your wife's clothes at the same time. Mm-hmm. You don't separate out your clothes from hers. Mm-mm. I never even thought about it. That's not even understand. a question that either my wife or my myself would ask. Wow, I don't understand just, why it's weird. I don't understand why you wouldn't just keep like do your own laundry. Like, cause then you got to step. That's an extra step that you're taking. That's unnecessary, because then you've got to add it to her pile, and then you got to separate out his and hers. If you keep it separate from to begin with, you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a waste of time. You're, it's not efficient. <laughs> or I can get both done at once instead of having to. But just... you're not getting both done because you still have the same amount of laundry. However much laundry you're doing on your own. You're mixing it in with hers and then having to separate it out. You're adding two steps in. No, everything goes in together. It's not like she puts hers in, then I put mine in after. Right, but you still got to separate it. So even if you're doing it that way, then you're still adding a step, just unnecessary step. Do you? Are you guys' closets in the same room? Yeah, we share a closet. Wow, we must have a good, you know, good-sized closet then. Good closet space <laughs> in the show household? I mean, well, my wife has a closet and then another closet for shoes and dresses. So technically, she has two closets. Ah, uh, so you really have half of a closet. Oh, yeah. I have half a dresser and a quarter of a closet. Wow. See, now I'm my own man. And I have my own closet and my own. <laughs> but to be fair, you used to be a, an, a reporter. So I'm sure you have at least six dress shirts. I have probably because you used to get a clothing allowance. And so I would spend it because I'm not like, – I'm going to spend all the company's money that they're going to give me. So I have like 20 <laughs> suits that I probably haven't worn in four years, and they're just sitting there. Okay, and could you fit into every one of those suits? Yeah. Not a boy. Bad. I just bought my first 48-size uh, waist jeans the other day. Are you serious, dude? You're at 48? That's no, I'm around. kidding. I'm just joking. No, That's I'm like not four basketballs. What size are you really rocking? Uh, 38. Okay, well. anyway, let's move on. All right, uh, let's give some shout-outs. You're mixing up all the hairs and shit. You're mixing your hairs with her hairs. Dude. Your byproducts with her byproducts. You're not thinking this through, man. You're not thinking this through. I mean, her clothes smell a certain way. Your clothes smell a certain way. I don't care how many times you watch it. They're still coming out like that, man. Wow, that's impressive. For I feel like we have to tell people that. That I was trying to get my camera to focus, and what got it to focus was my hair gel. 
So thank you very much. Wait, is it hair gel or are you still using your wife's hairspray? Uh, It's my wife's hairspray, actually. It's time to be your own man, John. You've got to have a little bit of independence there, right? I I mean, first off, you you, you come at me for doing laundry together. Now you're coming at me for using my wife's hairspray. I mean... I mean, I mean, I've I've put on her socks also on accident. Not only does that shoe fit, you're lacing them up. <laughs> All right, let's just give some shout outs. Okay. My wife's a nice lady. All right, wonderful, uh, let's see. Wonderful. We'll start. We'll be. start here with uh, Griffin McCurran. Appreciate you, uh, Marcos Talavera, Connor Huffster, Matt Gladzell, Jarius Grant. Jordan Colton, Filippo Bianchi, Dwayne Humphrey III, Miles Carr, and we're going to end here on Desiree Stott Rogers. For people who are like the third and the fourths, do you think that they really want to include that stuff in their social media handles, or is it just an easy way for them to like, oh, okay, well, this one's taken. Like, Nick Vinzant's taken, so I'll take Nick Vinzant the third. Like, or do you think that they purposely go out and like I'm going to be Nick Vincent the third? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people are uh, uh, want to have their name uh, and their their handle for whatever reason, so they maybe add that or or extend the name a little bit. Whether it's like Nick Vincent Junior or Nick Vincent Senior or but the first, you, second, or third. But I don't know anybody who's a junior or a senior or anything like that. But do they consider that to be part of their name? Like if you're introducing yourself thing. around, like I'm new at work, John Shaw the <laughs> third. No, I I don't ever actually do that. I I, I'm not either, by the way. No, but I can't think of anybody who's ever introduced themselves as like, hey, Chris Chris Johnson the fifth, <laughs> right? Um, or even like no, Chris I mean, Johnson Jr. Yeah, no one's ever. I mean, the only I think the only. Uh, uh, what am I thinking? The only time where you see it relevant in the United States is on like the back of sports jerseys or things. That's true. I, I, that's that's probably it. Driver's license, but nobody would ever introduce themselves. Driver's license. Thanks for that. Thanks for adding that to that. It's really helpful. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. I got a couple of bangers for you. Uh, would you rather be? Would you rather be a Disney prince or a Batman villain? Oh, Batman villain. Batman villain. I don't know, man. Disney princes always get the princesses. Not at Disney, man. <laughs> you think Batman villains are hurting for it? Yeah, I don't think... I, I thought about this. The, there aren't... Uh, okay, not getting too nerd here, because I know there's a million Batman villains, but if you're going just off the main movie villains... Yeah. There's what, maybe a half dozen or a dozen? Joker has Harley Quinn, dude. Right? They've all they're doing just fine. I'm gonna go ahead and say that Batman villains are doing way better in that regard than Disney princes. Better. I don't know, man. I just I, I don't I don't I don't think so. I, I think if you were to go case He's, by case and actually break it down, I don't think there's a Batman villain that is pulling as much tail as even the the lowliest Disney prince. But they're princes, and they've got to, like, uphold to the standard, and they're in the public eye. 
The Batman villain can just be doing whatever but they want. Ain't, ain't nobody getting with the Penguin. Penguin's doing all right, <laughs> dude, because he's no. definitely got the like. There's some people out there that are into some interesting things, even like Clayface, Mister Freeze, who's probably not physically capable at this point. I mean, he'd probably kill you, but he's got that frozen, that frozen Wang. But Joker's doing great. Even like Two Face, probably still doing okay. Bane. No, Come man. on, man. Bane would just first off, Bane would murder them, not even knowing it. Uh, uh, Bane was with Talia Al Ghul, which at one time was Batman's main love interest. See, so Bane snuck in. See, on See, I was territory. just trying to stay off the true nerdum, even though Bane I know is a movie character, but in the movie, he's not a movie character. What? He's a comic book character who was pulled into. Yeah, let's movies, just move okay? on. You, you're you. Talk to me about Batman, son. <laughs> Look at man, your hair is standing up. You're excited. Uh, okay. Uh, so this got me thinking. Uh, due to uh, some dryness and and uh, whatever and, and a drought, uh, Lake Mead has basically gone down to its clay. You know, it's it's not a lake anymore, or at least it isn't right now. And they're finding yeah. bodies and things in in the mud in the in the earth. So it got me thinking. What do you think would be the most awkward thing somebody would find at the bottom of, like, a river or lake? Well, probably bodies. I would think a lot of bodies. I can't think of anything more awkward. I mean, unless it's, like, you found the – you were the guy who just happened to be walking through the bottom of Lake Mead and found, like, the ring you gave to your <laughs> ex-girlfriend and she threw it in the bottom. I mean, that would be pretty awkward. Yeah. But it's- that's kind of crazy. Right, like all those things. You imagine that, like you're just finding. How many bodies have uh, they found? Two so far, but but they. Oh, I, I thought they were going to find like. Well, I was just reading. They it. they actually weren't even trying to find bodies. They're going to actually bring forensic, you know, scientists and anthropologists and things in to comb the lake now, because they think there's a lot more bodies. If you killed somebody, like how many years would have to go by before you thought like I got away with it? Would you ever feel like I got away with it? I feel like I would always be wondering if I'd be getting the knock on the door. However, I would imagine that after, I don't know, a year, maybe six months, it all it all kind of fades away, you know, and then if it's brought up again, you're like, oh, hell, it's here. But I think it probably goes away pretty quickly for most people that are just killing people and making them disappear. You're think you're saying six months to a year because I'm thinking like ten years, if not twenty, before I would start to like think I got away with it. I'm just thinking I, people who do it. Oh my gosh, this sounds terrible. I think people who do it and it's meticulously planned and they do it many times. They know what they're doing and they have no remorse. As where I think if it's like one of those accidental killings where you like throw the person into a ravine and you're like, oh, I hope no one finds them. Then they find them the next day. Um, you know, I, I just I think if you the people who actually the serial killers of the world out there, hopefully you're not listening to this or think I'm one. Uh, I feel like they meticulously plan this stuff and uh, there is no remorse. Do you know where you would dump a body? <laughs> uh, man, You're, why are you just putting uh, putting me on the spot? Um, I'm just wondering, like, like something I, I, happens, <laughs> you got to dump. Like, a body. I think I'd have an idea. However, I, I've always, I've, I, I've actually always wondered this. Like, would my idea work? Like, drive it out to the drive it out, drive the body out to like the middle of a 
of a field at 3 a.m. in the country. But, like, someone's going to see me, right? Yep. Like, And then it's going to come back or, or someone's yeah. going to get my license plate as I'm driving through, like, the city or something. Um, so, no. I, I, I mean, I would think the easiest thing would be to, like, stuff them in a barrel and throw them into something. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's just a lot of work. I mean, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, right? I mean, it's not as much work as spending the rest of your life in jail. But, see, I live next to the ocean. I'm in Seattle. So that's easy for me, right? Like, I'm renting a boat, and here we go, paying cash like, for that boat. Yeah, well, that's the th- even – we're getting way too deep on this. But even that, it's like – But they couldn't prove it, right? They couldn't prove it. Like, oh, but he rented but there'd a boat. Be cameras at the mar- there'd but be see, cameras at the marina, a- I'm sure. Yeah, but I drive the boat somewhere else. <laughs> I drive the boat like I got a drop off site, right? Like I'm going to have to get somebody. That's the problem, right? You involve somebody. Now you're exposing yourself. It's twice the exposure. So what I would probably do is like put it somewhere, right? Like in the forests and then go in, like establish okay, a pattern right. renting a boat and then go pick it up, then go out into the middle of the ocean. But like – that's what I would do. So much effort, okay, man. Just don't kill anybody. Peace. Yeah, dude. That, that's yeah. It's probably yeah. easier not to. It, yeah, it's probably easier. Just, but you know, shit happens, and you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> um, totally. Everybody, we're all yeah. we're just joking. Just Come. making plans. <laughs> Our top five is top five ways to say hello. What's your number five? Yo. You're actually saying yeah, yo. yo to what's... people. That's I can. Yo, I what's up? Yo, yo hey, yo. Oh, you're aging yourself, man. You can't say that oh. anymore. If somebody says yo to me right now, I'm going to give them a pretty weird look. It's like, like yo. Yo. Yo, yo, yo. Yo, yo. What? Yeah, man. It's not that bad. It's a little rude. Uh, I mean. Yo. I, I feel like a lot of these could be interpreted as rude. The problem is, is that John and I as white guys don't have the appropriate level of coolness to really pull off a good yo. Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree right? with that. However, I feel like I have a fine yo, yo. It's all right, but yo. we don't have access to that level of coolness to really get a I mean, good I mean, I think you're cool. Yeah, but I can't listen to me say, yo. You do sound like, you do kind of sound like sound a chihuahua. Uh, my number five is how are you? Because that's what I say to people that I kind of know. Have to pretend like I want to talk to you, but don't really care. Like, how are you? Hey, how are you? Oh. You got to get it over with. That's like it's nice enough for the person that you're like, all right, this is my wife's friend's husband. <laughs> I got to act like I give a shit. All right. Uh, my number four is uh, just a simple Hi. Do you have to make it that hi. creepy? Like you're about to molest some 18-year-old well, just, girl? You know, hi. Hi, how are you? Hey, hi. Hey. Hi, ho. From, from, from. My number four is just a point. I like to point at people I recognize. Like just, just a straight point. Like, yes. I see you. Okay. Just a I... point. Point well, very well if you're walking on the other side of a street of somebody. Great for if you're in the car. Okay. Just a point. It's kind of funny you do that because my my number three is just the uh, the head nod. You know, like a. You are not 
thinking this through. That's way too low for a head nod to me. A head nod should be higher. Uh, I don't mind. I mean, my my number one is uh, is particular to me, but uh, but yeah. So. Oh God. Oakley Doakley. What's your number three, Ned? Hey, hey. Because it it works both ways. It can be like, hey, excuse me. Hey, how are you, good friend? Hey, the fuck, man, right? Like, it's ver- the most versatile way to, to say hi to somebody. Hey, 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 right? You're having, like, a, a whole exhibit with yourself. I don't know. I don't want to interrupt it, so just keep haying everything. Or, like, that kind of, like, when you kind of, you got a little crush on somebody, like, hey, think about it, man. There's so many different ways you can say it. That's my number two. Uh, my number two is uh, what's up. That's all right. I feel like that's phased out a little bit. I don't think a lot of people are saying what's up as much as they used to. Could be right, but I think you're wrong. What's, what's up? up, man? What's up? That's all right. What's up? I feel like if we were doing this list five to ten years ago, what's up would be much higher on the list, but not what's so up? much now. It's kind of phased out. I've become a little bit more informal or formal with my hellos to people. It's like Adele said, hello. My number two is probably my favorite way to say hello to people, and that's the handshake and a hug, right? Where you see somebody, I think they used to call it like, I don't think a dab uh, is not what it was called, but like, you know, yeah, like call you it, do the handshake, but it's not the handshake. Call it a bro it's hug, like the, man. Just a bro hug. Like what, yeah, just a bro hug. Handshake to bro see, hug. I like I like a good right. If you if you're friends with somebody and you're excited to see them, yeah, I. That's a good right. Everybody likes that. I like a little man that, on. You know what? Touching. That's not. Uh, that's a good one. I I should have had that on my list because I I'm definitely a bro hugger man. I'm a big bro hugger too. That's probably why we like each other. We, we just hug we do. all day. It, uh, we do. Uh, my number one is uh, <laughs> brother. Hey, brother, brother, brother. Hey, brother. But it's me, and it's only me. I get it. No one else fucking says it. I'm weird. Uh, but it's just what I've done f- for a long, long time for whatever reason. So that hurts my feelings. Why is that? Because I re- I refer to very few other people in my life as like, all right, thanks, brother. Oh, very yeah, few I- people. And now I find out that you just throw that around to everybody, and I thought that was a thing that me and you had. Um, well, n- no. First off, it isn't. Uh, it's what I say to everybody, <laughs> and some people make fun of me for it, uh, which is fine. It's um, harsh. It's harsh. I'm actually a little sad. <laughs> oh boy, he's throwing down the mic. <laughs> for me, it's uh, the word love. Like if I say I love you, like you're you're in the shell inner circle. Like you know, if I say. Oh, oh you gosh. never said that to me. I don't have a bunch of texts. I have at least 100 text messages from you, and not one single one says that. 200 episodes of this podcast. Nick. I'm not in I the inner you. circle. You're my bro. You're my bro. Thanks, brother. But see. Thanks, brother. For me, like. I'm looking through our text No, I've never said right it because now. you're a dick not, to me. Oh, you did send me. You hearted something. You hearted you're a dick something. to me every time we talk via text. Like, you do it on purpose to piss me off. I yeah, do. and then you <laughs> Oh, you did say love you, bra. Oh, no, you said love it. Bra. Love it, brr. That doesn't count. I'm looking through the text messages. I'm back to, I'm in April. Well, it's only May, so keep going. <laughs> that hurt. Okay, you ready for my number one? 
head nod. I think it's the best way to to say hi to people because it involves not actually speaking to them. I mean, it's my number three. I mean, it's but to be honest, I probably would take that off and put the bro hug on there because I wasn't thinking about the bro hug. Yeah, I just think the head nod. How big of a head nod do you usually get? All right, let's say okay on the scale mm-hmm. of one to ten, one is just a very imperceptible movement. Ten is like the full <laughs> range of your neck. Where do you think that you generally are in regards it's to probably a, head a two nod? or a three? I mean, it's pretty subtle. I mean, it's just like a yeah. I mean, I'm not having no, that's a convulsion. Correct. You know, I'm not. You know, but right. And if you give somebody, I want to go ahead and say this, that if you give somebody more than, let's say, like a Mm 30-degree head nod, that's probably too much of a head nod. I don't think you go past that. I'm not even sure that I know what what 30 degrees would be, so I'm just going to go. I don't really know either, but I would say that if the scale of 1 to 10, from 1 being completely still to 10 full range of your neck, I don't think you go above (laughs) a 2 or a 3. I mean, I think it all depends on your neck size. You know, you want to make sure that you get the proper, you know, the proper uh, message across. So you got to make sure, you you know. Right. But most people have a pretty good head nod. You don't usually see a lot of people where you're like, what the? Like overly exaggerated head nod. (laughs) Unless you're really trying to get somebody's attention. You're you're like. like, (laughs) Right. I make myself dizzy over here. Okay. All right. What's in your oh, honorable boy. mention? I wrote down a lot. Uh, howdy. What's new? Hello. Good morning, afternoon, and evening. Any of those can apply. Uh, hey. What's happening? And uh, just simply, how's it going? How's it going is probably the only one of your list that I would that I would go ahead and say is honorable mention worthy. Like, how's it going? Fun. How are, how are you? Sup. I'm a, sup. I can be a supper, but it's more ironic like sup. Sup. I can eat some supper. God. I'm, I've got nothing to say. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. It really is special, and I really do want to say thank you for everybody who has listened. We made it to our 200th episode, and there is no way that we could have done it without you. So I want to thank you very much for taking time and listening to this show. We really appreciate it. So if you get a chance, say hi and let us know what are some of your favorite ways to say hello.